you. So Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35, we'll go to the end of the chapter this morning. You may not know this about me, but uh, I used to wear glasses, and I don't now. Uh, when I was a teenager, I went for my driving test and had to take an, an eye exam as part of that driving test, and uh, the guy had me put on these Hubble telescope type what, whatever lens viewer things, and he said, okay, read the numbers, or read the letters on the screen, and I said, okay, and no, number, no letters ever showed up. He said, whenever you're ready. I said, well, th- there's no letters there. And he goes, mm, okay. <laughs> it was bad. So I got glasses. I played high school basketball with these giant rec specs, big old plastic goggle things. They were fabulous. Uh, and then, uh, as a young adult, I was given the incredible gift of LASIK, LASIK eye surgery. And uh, it was a life changer. And I remember everything about the procedure really well. It was a, it was a really a monumental moment for me. Uh, when I went in for the procedure that day, sat on the table in the room where they were going to do the procedure, the nurse took my glasses and she said, uh, can you see that clock on the opposite wall? And I said, yeah. She said, can you tell me what time it is? I, I could not see numbers. I couldn't even see the hands on the clock. There was no way I was going to be able to tell the time. And she said, well, that's going to change here in just a minute. And I thought, okay. So uh, I lay down on the table. They pry open my eyelids. (laughs) This laser comes in, and it zaps my face for about 10 minutes. And then, I mean, it was really about it, about 10 minutes. And I sat up on the table, and the nurse said, what time is it? I could see that clock perfectly. I couldn't believe it. Just that quick. I could see the numbers, I could see the, uh, see the hands, I could see the second hand, I could see all the little tick marks around the clock. It was an immediate, immediate improvement. And in the days ahead, as my eyes healed up from the procedure, my eyesight, my eyesight only improved. And I was seeing things in a way that I had never seen them before. It was really fantastic. I mean, I had glasses, I had contacts, it wasn't like I, I was uh, incapacitated uh, by my poor eyesight, but just to be able to wake up and to see things as they really are was really a big deal. When our eyesight improves, when we see things better, it makes a world of difference for us. So I wonder, do you suppose that followers of Jesus should see the world in a unique way, in a different way than others? It seems to me that we should. If Jesus is the lens through which we view the world, then our take on many things should be different than the rest of the world. In Jesus' final days before his crucifixion, he makes a point to teach his disciples how to see the world around them. He instructs them on some really specific things here at the end of Mark chapter 12. He teaches them about his identity once again. He talks to them about the nature of true greatness. It's a lesson they've visited time and time again throughout their ministry with Jesus. He also teaches them about the type of person who has the favor of God. These are in some ways familiar lessons, but again, they are poignant and and very precise as Jesus lays them out here at the end of Mark chapter 12. These three issues are still in flux today. The issues of the identity of Jesus, the issue of what's true greatness look like, the issue of who is the type of person that pleases God. Those are contemporary discussions, contemporary questions, things that people still discuss and debate and have disagreement over. 
But if we saw the world the way Jesus sees the world, if we viewed things through his lens, then all of life would be totally different. If we saw Jesus for who he truly is, as the Son of God, the Lord of all, that changes our lives. If we viewed greatness the way Jesus did, that would change our hearts. If we understood what kind of life pleases God, that would impact our faith. There's immediate application and transformation for those of us that learn the lessons of seeing the world the way Jesus does. So my goal today is quite simple here at the end of Mark chapter 12. I want to improve your vision of things. When we see right, we're going to live right. And this passage today challenges us to see Jesus and power and possessions in a very different way. Now, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, because it's been a long Christmas season, a long month of December, let's recap a little bit to make sure we know where we are in the Gospel of Mark, and in particular, in the life of Jesus. So, in Mark, from the end of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 12, is one day in the life of Jesus. It's the Tuesday before he's crucified. It all takes place in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, that's where everything takes place from here on to Easter Sunday. Everything is in Jerusalem. And so Jesus um, is in, uh, in the temple complex on this Tuesday, and he meets with one conflict after another. Here's a list of all of those conflicts. There's five or, or six, depending on how you count some of these things. But uh, you might remember as we walk through, at the end of chapter 11, start of chapter 12, Jesus has this confrontation with some members of the Sanhedrin. They challenge him about the authority by which he does these things. Uh, and then in the middle of chapter 12, you've got Pharisees and Herodians who team up together, an unlikely team. They normally hated each other, but they had a common enemy in Jesus. And they scheme together and they come to try and trick Jesus with a question about paying taxes. Then you have the Sadducees who come to Jesus, and it's like they're just lined up one right after the other. Sadducees challenge Jesus on the issue of the resurrection, and Jesus puts them down. And then, immediately following that confrontation with the Sadducees, is a unique confrontation. Confrontation is a strong word. It's a discussion between Jesus and a teacher of the law. And remember, that teacher of the law seemed to come to Jesus with sincere um, concern and, and a desire to understand things from Jesus' point of view. Jesus tells the young man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That's where we left off in Mark. And this morning we pick up here at the very last. It's a question of whose son is the Christ. And it's a question posed by Jesus himself. This interaction today is different from the previous ones in this way. Jesus is the instigator. He's the one that presses the issue. Previously, it's been one right after another. All these challengers step up and take a swing at Jesus. But now Jesus turns the tables and he goes to them with a pointed question and a, and a challenge. How many of these confrontations does Jesus win, so to speak? All of them. <laughs> There's not one point at which Jesus falters or where it seems like the other guys are going to get the one up on Jesus. At every step, he's in full control, answers every question, puts down every challenger, and now here at the very end of chapter 12, he turns it back on to these religious leaders. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 35. 
While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. So I want to show you in our passage three things that followers of Jesus see different. Why three? Our passage breaks down into three very simple scenes. You have the confrontation with the religious leaders. You have the warning about the religious leaders. And then you have the teaching about the widow and her offering. So three things Followers of Jesus see different. If you're taking notes, the first is this. Here's what we see different. We see the supremacy of Jesus, our Lord. Compared to the rest of the world, everyone else, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ, our Lord, above everything else. Jesus is not a mere good teacher. Jesus is not just a good influence. Jesus is, above all, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We see the supremacy of Jesus, our Lord. In verses 35 through 37. So our passage opens up verse 35. Mark does what Mark does so well. He never leaves us guessing where we are. We always know where we are, where we're located on the map with Mark. And so verse 35, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And uh, we've been here since the end of chapter 11. Remember, one long day, one conflict after another. And now it's Jesus' turn to pose a question to all of his challengers. So to the religious leaders who have been opposing him and his disciples who are present and also the crowd of looky-loos who are there as well on that day, Jesus asks this question in verse 35. How is it that the teachers of the law teachers of the law, that's, those are the religious leaders that have been challenging Jesus repeatedly on this day and throughout the entirety of his ministry. So how is it that these teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So, what is Jesus talking about? Whenever he says, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Who is the Christ to whom Jesus is referring there? Well, it's himself. He's speaking of himself here. But he does so in a way that is a bit indirect, but at the same time challenges those around him to recognize who he is, what his identity truly is. And so the question challenges their most basic understanding of the Christ, 
or the Messiah, the anointed one who's been sent by God to save his people. This is, in essence, Judaism 101. Jesus is challenging them on a most basic point, the identity of the Messiah. So what do the teachers of the law teach? Well, they teach that the Messiah, the promised Savior of God's people, is going to come from the lineage of David. David's going to be his ancestor, the great King David. And that's not wrong. That's absolutely correct. And one thing you've got to get said in your mind in order to make sense of what Jesus asks here is that Jesus is not refuting the Davidic lineage of the Messiah. That's not what he's doing at all. Jesus believes and, and, and agrees with teachers of the law that the Messiah will at least come from the line of David. Scripture is full of these promises and these commitments. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is God's promise to David that from him will come this great king. And just a couple of weeks ago, we spent time in Micah chapter 5. And in chapter 5 verse 2, there's this promise, out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah will come one to lead. So there's the the promise again that from David's line is going to come the Messiah, the one who will stand and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. So Jesus isn't disagreeing with that at all. He's on board with it. But rather, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, the one who will come, this Messiah, is not merely David's descendant. He's not merely a son of David. There's more to him than that. And so in verse 36, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, 110, uh, verses 1 and 2. And uh, this is a psalm from David. David is speaking in this moment. And uh, David makes this statement. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, some critics would say that Psalm 110 has nothing to do with the Messiah. They would say this is not a messianic psalm. This is a royal psalm. David has written these words in recognition of his son Solomon, who's going to be crowned as king. So it's a royal psalm, not a messianic psalm. That's what the critics would say. But let me give you a list of names of people who would refute the critics and say, no, this is indeed speaking about the Messiah. Some of their names include the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, not to be outdone, Jesus himself sees in Psalm 110 words that reference the Messiah himself. So I think it's okay for us to side with Jesus and his guys and against the critics on the other hand. Okay? So uh, in verse 36, Jesus tells us that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. And that's an important line. To speak by the Holy Spirit is to speak as a prophet by divine inspiration. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, David says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. So David acts like a prophet in this moment when he speaks through the Holy Spirit. David's identified as a prophet. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, and is said to have spoken by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 4. The New Testament authors viewed the Holy Spirit's guidance in the production of Scripture as so intimate that Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are sometimes started like this 
the Holy Spirit spoke. So when the Holy Spirit inspires someone, speaks through someone, here we have the words of God. In David, in Psalm 110, Jesus says David spoke by the Holy Spirit when he said these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If Psalm 110 were merely a royal psalm about David's son, we might expect David to use the word son rather than Lord. The Lord said to my son, sit at my right hand. That's what we might expect. But there's, there's something weird about the words he uses. There's a reversal here. David, at the time that he speaks, he is the king. Solomon is not yet the king. Solomon will not be the king until David is dead. Solomon's not king before that time. David alone is the king. And so, David, for David to say, the Lord said to my Lord, as a reference to his son, is backwards. David's not referring to his son, though. He's referring to the Messiah, this other one who will come from his line, this great David above everything else. He says, David says, my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, sitting at the right hand of God is a place of high privilege, highest honor. You remember James and John asked Jesus back in Mark chapter 10, can we sit at your right and left in, in your kingdom? And Jesus said, that's not for me to decide. And uh, you have no idea what you're asking. Well, this, sit, this seat at the right hand of the Father puts the person there as a vice regent, a vice ruler, another ruler alongside God the Father. It's a place of great honor and esteem, a place of worship. And what's more, the Lord said to my Lord that he's going to place someone under your feet. To do that, to place someone under your feet is to subdue them, to vindicate the one uh, who has been under attack. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus concludes his question in verse 37 this way. He says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Again, Jesus is not saying the Messiah is not a son of David. He's saying he is not merely a son of David. He is also the son of God, the Lord of Lords. This is where the thinking had been messed up among these religious experts who knew the word of God forwards and backwards. They had read all there was to read, and their conclusion was merely genealogical. They had missed the clear instruction of God's word that the one to come, the Messiah, was going to be of a different variety, not just another man from a certain bloodline. He was going to be the God who took on flesh and came to serve as mediator between God and man once and for all. It's an interesting scene because Jesus doesn't answer his question explicitly. He just sort of leaves it hanging there in the midst of all of this conflict. But you and I know the answer to the question because Mark has been our teacher all along. Jesus is not simply the son of David. He is that, but he is also the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Mark introduces us to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, as the son of God. Then God the Father uh, proclaims Jesus as his beloved son at Jesus' baptism. When demons see Jesus, they also recognize him as the son of God. 
this same phrase, Son of God, is going to be used as an indictment against Jesus just a few days from these events when the high priest accuses him of blasphemy. And then at the climax of Mark's gospel, uh, just seconds after Jesus breathes his last on the cross and dies, a Roman centurion uses that same line. Surely this man was the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. He's telling us something about his identity. Who is Jesus? Son of David, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. What does that mean for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, there are two questions you must answer in light of the question Jesus has asked. One question is, who is Jesus? Second question is, what does that mean for me? You have to reconcile the claims of Jesus with your life. And what has Jesus claimed about himself? He has claimed that he is God, not God light, not the man chosen by God, not more than a man, less than a God, not the man who became God. He is very God. And you have to do something with that information Many of you are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis' old thought experiment about the claims of Christ. Jesus, who claims to be God, he is either going to be a liar, a lunatic, or he's going to be Lord. Right? If Jesus said, I am God, but he knew he wasn't, then that makes him a liar. If he said, I am God, and he really believed he was, but he wasn't, that would make him insane, a lunatic. But if he said, I am God, and he was God and is God, then that makes him the Lord. There's no room there for Jesus to be just a good teacher or someone who gives good proverbs or fables or myths or stories for us to align our lives with. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then he is one of the cruelest figures in all of history and Christianity, one of the cruelest constructs on planet Earth, to call people to a lie or to follow a madman. If Jesus is not God, then he has no power, no ability to save, to benefit our lives, to do anything to improve our lot in life. He's not a man worth following. But if he is Lord, then the second question you've got to answer is this. What does that mean for my life? What happens so often, I find, is that we have people who will say, to the best of their knowledge, yes, I agree that Jesus is God in the flesh, but then we fail to recognize the claim that makes on our lives. If I say Jesus is God, and then I don't attach my life to him, friend, that is what, that's what lunacy looks like. To acknowledge, to confess Jesus is God, and then to walk my own way apart from him, is a sad state. But for us to recognize that he is God and then for us to surrender our lives, to trust him, to give everything to him, that's where we experience forgiveness and life and salvation. That's where we see Jesus hung on the cross, three days later rise from the dead, and we know he's God. He died. He lives. He did it for me. And by trusting in him, it's effective for my salvation. That's good news for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ. Who is he? 
What does it mean for you? Those are questions you've got to wrestle with today. If you're already a follower of Jesus, there's no small amount of blessing for you in thinking about the things Jesus has said here about himself. The divinity of Christ is for us a source of strength and comfort. Think about this. Our great enemy, Satan, has a future as an Ottoman for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's okay. It's a picture of his utter defeat and humiliation that is guaranteed, promise given by God that he will vindicate the one who lays down his life, who bears the wrath for all sin. He will lift him up and at the same time put down the enemy. There's strength and comfort for you in that. But also on a very practical note, here's an encouragement I think for our evangelism as well. When you think about sharing your faith with other people, let me encourage you to take a lesson from this question here and make the divinity of Jesus Christ of primary importance. All too often what happens when we share the gospel with people is we'll, we'll say the right words, Jesus died for your sin. That's true. But if the person doesn't understand who Jesus is, in his fullness. If he doesn't understand or she doesn't understand that Jesus is God, the one sinned against who still came and died and rose again, if Jesus isn't God, then they're not hearing the gospel. It's just someone else died and that's it. Do not shortchange the divinity of Christ in your gospel conversations. Make it a matter of primary importance. Jesus does on this day. There's grace to these religious leaders on this particular Tuesday because here's Jesus having the last conversation he's going to have with some of them and he tells them the most important thing they have to hear before his crucifixion and that is that he is God who has come to them. And if the people in the temple courts needed to hear that that day, then the people in your lives need to hear that same message. Make the divinity of Christ of primary importance as you tell the story of his death and resurrection and the hope for all who believe. Christians see things in a different way. We see the supremacy of Jesus our Lord. Second, we see the horrors of perverted power. Jesus turns his attention still to these um, religious leaders, but he seems to be speaking now not to them directly, but to the crowd and to his disciples. And look at what Jesus says in verse 38. It says, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted in marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So Jesus nails these religious leaders for six different items. Their dress, they wear flowing robes. Jesus is not anti-robe. He's not anti-flowiness. But it's the, it's the appearance of importance. It's, it, it's lifting oneself above others in the way that you dress he has issue with their desire for attention in the marketplace. Again, Jesus is not against greeting one another in places of business. But the social customs at the time required a style of greeting that was way beyond just a simple, hi, how are you? 
One was the greeter, the other was the greeted one. And the greeted one was in a position high and above the greeter. It was a low thing to greet one of these religious leaders. They wear their flowy robes. They want to be greeted in the marketplaces. Um, They get the seats of honor in the synagogue. They want to make sure they're seen. They get an important place. They get places of honor at banquets. Fifth thing Jesus mentions, they devour widows' houses. And then they make lengthy prayers for show. It's tough to know exactly what Jesus means when he says that they devour widows' houses. At the very least, we understand that these snakes were predators on these defenseless people. Everything about them is showy and arrogant and prideful and ostentatious and anti-Christ. Everything about them. And Jesus issues a stern warning. Watch out for them. Protect yourself from them and keep yourself from being like them. Don't adopt their value systems. Don't assume greatness is greatness defined by them. Don't assume that they exercise power in a way that honors God. These are religious leaders. These are the people who hold the keys of their little kingdoms there. These are not not just politicians for whom we might expect corruptness and weirdness. These are religious leaders. Jesus says, watch out for these people who live and practice such arrogance and such pride. Pride is such an insidious foe. But before we distance ourselves from the religious leaders in the passage, we need to evaluate our own lives and our own hearts. Where does pride linger in my life? You may not devour widows' homes, but pride might be identified by the person that you are against, the persons that you think little of, those whom you demean with your language or your thoughts or your actions. Those might be a way to identify pride in your life. And isn't it a crazy thing to assume? You can have the acclaim of the business community, the acclaim of the religious community. You can have a name that is revered and respected. But if you live for yourself, then you are simply a severe punishment in waiting. The polls can be in your favor. Everyone can be on your side, but God knows your heart. And he judges pride and arrogance severely. The problem here in the passage is not power in and of itself. It's the abuse of power. If we were to take this and to say, oh, now we've got to tear down all power structures and, and get rid of these things and level the playing field, that's not, I think that goes beyond what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is talking about heart matters here. And the fact is, Jesus is going to have people of great power and privilege follow him. People like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who's a member of the Sanhedrin. People like Joseph of Arimathea, in whose tomb Jesus was laid. Powerful man. And others like the, the, sat, or the, the teacher of the law, the scribe, with whom Jesus just interacted earlier in chapter 12. He's going to have people of power that follow him. That's not the issue. The issue is what do you do with the power and the privilege that you've been given? How do you treat other people? Do you use these things as a platform for yourself to put down others and exalt your own name? 
And believe me, in my life, it doesn't take much for me to put myself on a platform. It's probably true for you as well. Because I love my name, and I love myself, and I love my accolades, and I am an arrogant man through and through. These words speak to me, and they speak to you with precision and conviction. People in positions of religious power must heed the words of Jesus carefully. Jesus, back in Mark chapter 10, called his disciples together, and he warned them about these things. He said, you know those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another way we might apply this passage in the immediate future is this. We have an associate pastor candidate coming in just a couple of weeks, Steve Grissom. You know what's the number one matter you need to discern about Steve Grissom's life? His character. Is he a humble man? Does he love his wife and his children in humility? Does he lead his church in humility? Does he apply his gifts with humility? Does he have the character of Christ in him? If he does not, yet he has every award, every accolade, does everything with excellence, but he does not walk in the humility of Christ, we don't want him. I'll tell you this, God can do more with a humble Christ-like servant who may not have all the, the accolades of others than he will ever do with someone who gets the poll numbers and yet walks in arrogance and pride. To be a humble servant is to be a wonderful thing and to be served by humble servants is a great thing as well. We see power different. We understand the horrors of perverted power as followers of Jesus. One last thing we see different because of Christ is we see the blessing of total trust in God. It's the blessing of total trust in God. Our final scene takes place still in the temple complex. It's in an area known as the court of women, and there are receptacles in this area to give your offering to the temple. Now, we... We, every Sunday, we worship through tithes and offerings. We pass the plates. You put it in. You pass the plate. You do the thing. Or you give online. So giving is something that we're familiar with. But this style of giving was very different. Jewish writings describe 13 receptacles for offerings in the temple complex. They were shaped like trumpets, like shofars. And they were called shofar chests. 13 of them. Each one has a different letter or word on it, which describes what the money in that box went for. So you didn't just dump it all into one tub, or it wasn't 13 different receptacles that all went into the general fund, so to speak. This one was for wood. This one was for sacrifices. This one was for animals. This one was for priests, that type of deal. They're made of brass. So when you would bring in your coins and you would dump them into the different receptacles, it made a noise. Everyone knew, clingity, 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 kind of, Kind of like a slot machine type deal, I assume. I wouldn't know anything about those things, but I read about them in a book. Loud coins, 
bunch of noise drawing attention to yourself. If you're wealthy and you have a large gift to give, then you could give a lot in each receptacle and draw all this attention to you. That's what's happening here in this scene. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Just two little coins. They would hardly have made any noise at all, especially by comparison to others who were giving in that moment. And if they had made noise, uh, it wouldn't have been impressive by comparison to others who were throwing in their very large amounts. And so what does Jesus do? He calls his disciples to him, guys, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. I've got to show you something. Come here. And Jesus has done this previously in his ministry. He often calls the disciples to himself when he has something really important to teach them. And this is one of those moments. He calls them together. Guys, come here. Check this out. I want you to see what's happened here. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. By human measures, the woman's gift was minuscule, but by heaven's standards, her contribution was priceless. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? What does that look like? It looks like this woman. It also looks like first century churches in Macedonia whom Paul says gave out of their extreme poverty to help the struggling churches of Judea. It also looks like Barnabas who was willing to sell his own property to help the poor. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength also looks like this. It's storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's not worrying about what you will eat or drink or wear, knowing that if God clothes the grass of the field and feeds the birds, that he's also going to take care of you. This precious woman has shown us what it looks like to trust God with all you have. Does that mean you need to write a check this morning, divesting yourself of every asset and giving it to the church? No, that's not what this is talking about. Should we be givers? Absolutely we should be givers. Unashamed of that? We're going to talk about that openly. Celebrate. Encourage ourselves to be faithful in our giving and to do it with joyful and glad hearts as often as we have the opportunity. That would be a regular discipline in our lives. But the point here is that we would have the right kind of heart, that we would trust God with all that we have. I don't think this is intended to be an allegory, but I think there's application here beyond just two small copper coins. What situations do you face? What items are you clinging to rather than entrusting to God? Someone in your life who you've prayed for, who you hope will come to faith in Christ, who you desire to know the Lord, a relationship that's broken and struggling, sin in your own life. What is the thing that you cling to rather than entrusting to God? This woman shows us the better way, the way of faith and trust, the way of blessing. This is the person, this is the person who has the favor of the Lord. It begs us to ask the question, is my walk with Christ marked by surrender or by showiness? Am I 
more concerned with the acclaim of others, like those who put their large gifts into the treasury and make a lot of noise, or like these religious leaders who dress a certain way and require certain respect, or can I be a person like this woman who in humility and quietness lives my life totally surrendered to Jesus Christ? So this morning, Mark sets before us three different scenarios challenges our views on these things. He showed us that Jesus is more than merely the son of David. He's the son of God and the Lord of all. He's shown us the horrors of pride, and he's shown us the blessing of trusting God with everything. Jesus challenges us to see these things from his perspective, not just so that our vision is different, but so that our living is different. He isn't merely forming our opinions, but he's shaping our actions are living. And our world needs Christians with the moral courage to proclaim boldly and loudly, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And our world needs Christians who will lead in integrity and humility. And our world needs Christians who will follow God in faith with everything that they have. And you, you need to be this kind of person as well. Jesus speaks to us clearly helps us to see that we might live. May you and I see like Jesus, that we might live like Jesus so that others might believe in Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Lord, I feel like each one of the three scenes we've looked at this morning uh, just presses in conviction on my heart. I gotta believe it presses in conviction on others as well. But I don't think your intention here is just to beat us up with this. I think your intention here is grace and mercy and gladness. The gladness that comes from knowing that God came to us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten. Thank you, son of David, son of God who came for us. Thank you, speak to us grace and hope in freeing us from worldly definitions of power and greatness, and instead setting us on a path of humility, the same humility we see in our Lord who laid down his life for us. And what's more, you set us free from clinging to our possessions, clinging to our issues, from fractured faith, and you show us to a humble, poor, beautiful woman, what it is to walk with you by faith. Lord, lift us this morning as we trust in you. I pray for my friends that don't know you as their Savior, Lord, that they would, they would come to a finality with these matters, that they would see you for who you are and they would wrestle intently with the claim you have on their life. Open their eyes, awaken them to faith, that they would walk with you and be saved. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that you would help us to be these kinds of people, the kinds of people who exalt you, who walk in humility, who trust you completely, that we would walk in your blessing and that we would proclaim the gospel with boldness and power. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.